Hello and welcome back to Tree the Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think the natural world is incredible. Including those that get those feelings when talking about their felines. Feelings. Okay. I get to talk to people who are dedicated to or inspired by the natural world. About eight months ago, around 20 captive-bred native Scottish wildcats were released into the Badenoch and Strathspey area of Scotland. Now, as they traverse their first winter, today I bring you an interview I recorded last summer with the man who set up and managed the Cairngorms Wildcat Project, which acted as the pilot programme for this ongoing successful Saving Wildcats initiative. But... Although today's guest will happily talk to you about the ongoing successes of existing reintroduction programmes, I set out to ask him a different question about a different cat. Does Britain have enough well-connected forest habitat to support large, mobile, forest-dependent species, a species whose urine, according to Hildegard von Bingham, was great for your gut when drank, a species whose pelt was in high demand by Viking noblemen, and a species that is so cool that they literally named it thrice? Yes, today is all about the links. And today is all about whether or not Britain is ready to have a large, free-roaming apex predator return to our shores. So, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Dr. David Hetherington. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. All right, so where am I? Where, where, where are we? This is Anagach Woods, which is a rather fine resource for us to have on the edge of the town of Grantonon Spey. It's a pretty cool pine wood, and it looks very ancient, but in fact is basically man-made. It wasn't here 250 years ago. A mixture of uh, plans, natural regeneration and planting created this, and it's a wonderful place for, for people to go uh, for a bit of quiet contemplation or a morning jog or a dog walk uh-huh. and uh, not a bad place to, to hear or perhaps if you're lucky see a crested tit, a red squirrel and if you're extremely lucky possibly a capercaillie but to be honest I haven't seen one of them in here for 20 years although I know they are still knocking about occasionally. Uh-huh. Whose initiative was this to get it all planted up? And- that was almost certainly the, the landed gentry of the time. Um, it was probably planted when Granton and Spee was created. It's a, a design town. It was created in 1765, the town, mm-hmm. and it's got a very sort of formal street pattern. You know. It feels a bit like a Wild West town with one central high street going through it with a saloon on one side. and a. Well, you just missed the gunfight yesterday, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it was uh, the local landowner who uh, created this. It, it would have been a moor grazed by livestock, and I think uh-huh. the livestock would have just been fenced out. A bit of planting and a bit of natural regeneration, probably from some, you know, scattered granny pines. They've um, done a good job of putting in Scots pine, though. They're thinking about the n- natural species. Yeah, um, I mean, that is very much the predominant commercial conifer tree of the Cairngorms. Sure. And, of course, uh, the predominant uh, native tree of the Cairngorms. We've got some rather splendid Caledonian forest remnants in the Cairngorms, so this is very much 
mimicking that in, in so many ways. You know, it's and it's not just pine. As you can see, we've got birch trees, mm -hmm. we've got rowan trees, we've got willow bushes, and we've got this great ground flora of heather and, and blaeberry, uh, or blueberry, as you would call it, south of the border, which is the sort of ground cover that birds like capercaillie and others thrive in. One of the things that I, I was wondering whether I was going to bring up was that you're on the board of Trees for Life, which is an organisation I've been following for some time. Oh, yeah. How are they getting on? Because there was a huge initiative to get a lot more trees in the ground in Scotland. Yeah, Trees for Life have gone from strength to strength in the last few years. Um, it's an organisation I've long admired. Um, I really liked what they were trying to do to expand native woodland in the highlands, recognising that there had been a lot of ecological damage over many centuries. And not only the, the woodland that they wanted to bring back, they wanted to bring back some of the missing species. And again, that was something that chimed with me, mm -hmm. appreciating that we had lost so much over the years. So, yeah, they've been increasingly involved in, in doing that, uh, working with private estates more and more, as well as purchasing their own land and running their own estate. Sure. So have they been supportive of the recent Wildcat, Scottish Wildcat release programme? Yeah, absolutely. I think Trees for Life uh, are very supportive of the restoration of any of Scotland's missing fauna. And they themselves have been very actively involved in reintroducing red squirrels mm -hmm. from parts of the eastern highlands where there's, there's robust populations and taking them over to some of the more isolated woodlands on the west coast where red squirrels are unlikely to be able to, to recolonise by themselves. Yeah, red squirrels are doing all right up here. I was, re I was reading about how, I think I'm right in saying, pine martins were successfully predating upon the grey squirrels to help them along the way. Is that the case, or is that just no, one of those good news stories where everybody seems to win? Well, there is a danger that we, we like the narrative so much that we strip out all the nuance. But yes, I mean, pine martins do, well, they, of course they can predate red squirrels, that's their, mm -hmm. their natural prey, but of course red squirrels have uh, adapted to the presence of pine martins and they are very nimble in the treetops and they're a lot smaller than a pine martin, so they, they are capable of escaping pine martin predation by getting out into those, those small uh, branches at the edges of the trees. Grey squirrels, um, being from North America, and being from a part of North America, where, as I understand it, they didn't have a native arboreal mustelid, mm -hmm. a martin, chasing them, they're not well adapted to avoiding that type of predation. That's odd that there wasn't a big old carnivorous mustelid after them in the trees. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding, that the North American martin didn't occur in those eastern woodlands where the grey squirrel did. Uh -huh. And of course, grey squirrels are quite a lot bigger yeah, yeah. Than, than red squirrels, less nimble, heavier, therefore less likely to be able to escape pine martin predation anyway. And so, yeah, the, in some landscapes, it's been noted that where red squirrels and grey squirrels and pine martins all occur, that their predation has been heavily skewed towards greys and that there's been a, a response from the, the red squirrel population to the reduction in greys. So it's exciting and interesting whether that applies to every single landscape remains sure. to be seen, of course. Going back to the Scottish Wildcats, you were the project manager on that for about six, seven years? Uh, three years. Three years. That's good maths yeah. for my <laughs> Yeah, I managed the Cairngorms Wildcat project from 2009 to 2012. Okay. And that project, I suppose, acted as a bit of a pilot project for subsequent wildcat conservation initiatives in Scotland. We trialled a variety of, of different methods, including working more closely with the likes of Cats Protection to step up the trapping and neutering, neutering and vaccination of, of feral domestic cats, mm -hmm. and indeed pet cats. You know, 
responsible cat ownership, trying to promote those messages. It was very involved in getting that wildcat conservation message out to the wider public, because I think wildcats have been pretty forgotten about. Mm-hmm. wasn't really much of a, uh, an imperative for the conservation world at the time. There were no other initiatives going on. How big was the native population? Did it get down very small or were they just happily ticking along? Well, or do we not really know? We, they... we don't really know. Uh, at the time, the figure that was being banded about, which was very much a stick your finger in the air type thing, uh-huh. was 400. Okay. And going downwards. Um, we now know a lot more about wildcat conservation status than we did back then. But we were working on the basis that there were still wildcats out there. Um, but that hybridisation was definitely an issue. Hybridising with domestic cats and creating a hybrid swarm, if you like. So, you know, that, that conservation messaging is actually quite complex. Predators are complicated anyway when you're dealing with people. There's often conflicts between people and, and predators. Uh-huh. And in this instance, you've got the, the sort of issue with of... domestic pet crossover rather than simply agricultural crossover and threat to farming, etc. Yeah, it's, it was... There's me trying to nuance it and make it simple again. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was it was very confused because we, we, we knew hybridisation was going on. Uh, it was creating a lot of hybrids, which was then sort of oiling the wheels of further hybridisation. Yeah, yeah. It then made it very difficult to do very fundamental things like identify what is a wildcat. Sure. It was really blurring the boundaries. And of course, we're trying to neuter one and save the other. And if you don't quite know which is which, then you can get in a real guddle about that. So that we had to be quite careful with our messaging, quite clear consistent we needed to work very closely with the gamekeeping profession uh-huh. because persecution over the centuries has been a big reason why we don't have wildcats in most of Britain today so I think it was important to have a positive working relationship with the gamekeeping community in order to address some of the conservation risks and that was quite novel as you, as you know there's a great deal of conflict between conservationists and gamekeepers about mm-hmm. uh, predators in the UK today and I think if wildcats had got sucked into the vortex of the or kind of raptor politics, for example, yeah. then it would have definitely been the end. So I was really keen to try and um, foster more positive relationships with gamekeepers and make use of some of their skills in terms of, you know, they're out in the landscape all year round, yeah. at various times of day, uh, with spotlights and, and whatnot. They're in a, a position to, to see an awful lot that your typical person isn't going to see. It does seem to me that engaging local communities, whether they be landowners or conservationists in the field, you need to have that local knowledge because they're the people with their feet on the ground. Yeah. It was the same thing in Namibia with the rhinos where I've just been. Without involving the local conservancies, we wouldn't have the the information about the numbers of the, the animals out there. And then, then there's the knock-on effect of them actually enjoying being involved in the, the process. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. I think the message that we were going to the gamekeeping community was, you know, this is a native species, a native yeah. Scottish species, and it's going to go extinct if we don't do something. Yeah. Do we really want that to happen? And surely that's simpler than a reintroduction that we'll get onto in, in a bit with other bigger cats <laughs> to save something that we've already got here should easily be able to get more traction than trying to bring in something from outside. Yeah, in theory, although, <laughs> although I, I wouldn't underestimate how, how tricky it is to conserve wildcats in a landscape, where you, particularly where you've got a lot of hybrids uh, sure. already. That is uh, quite a challenging thing. I think it's absolutely doable. And indeed, we are attempting to do that very thing. 
um, with the Saving Wildcats project, which is the, the current iteration of wildcat conservation in Scotland. So who are you and where did this fascination with nature begin? Take me back to the beginning. <laughs> so uh, I was born in Aberdeen on the east coast of Scotland. It's the third biggest city in Scotland. I grew up on a council estate and uh, my parents had divorced when I was oh, about three. And of mm -hmm. course, it was my dad that had the car. Uh, I lived with my mum. I saw my dad at weekends. So my access to nature growing up came in two forms. One was I could walk down to the green corridor that, uh, that the River Dawn created in the city of Aberdeen. We've got two rivers in Aberdeen and the Dawn is the more northerly of the two and it's the one closest to where I grew up. And there were woods and there were grasslands and of course the river itself. Mm -hmm. So that allowed me to, to interact with nature quite a bit. And then my dad remarried and his second wife's parents had a, a farm on the east side of Loch Ness. So we would often go there for, for weekends and that was a great opportunity for me to embrace rural Scotland. Sure and see some of the wildlife that I wasn't going to see in the city. You know, things like foxes, which at the time you didn't really get in Aberdeen, you do now. Uh -huh. The deer, you know, seeker deer, roe deer, red deer, black grouse, all these things were, were pretty um, visible and easy to encounter for the, the sort of, you know, the five to eight year old me. Yeah. Okay, so could you tell me the taxonomic name for the northern subspecies of the Eurasian <laughs> lynx, please? I warn you, there will be a strong echo. It's lynx, lynx, lynx. <laughs> so good they named it thrice. Yeah. What does lynx mean? What's the etymology of the word? Yeah, an interesting question. We think the, the roots of that are, go a long way back into the sort of Indo-European languages, and it's almost certainly got a connection with the word for light. Okay. And uh, a connection, for example, to the Greek word lukos. And going back, way back, it was thought that eyes used to make their own light sure. so the the better the eyesight the more light it made and of course um, lynx were proverbially known as creating or, or having fantastic eyesight being able to see things and from long distances so you know in many european languages whilst we might say in english eagle-eyed or eyes like a hawk in many european languages there's a phrase eyes like a lynx or lynx-eyed mm -hmm. so i think that's probably the connection so it, it's worth saying for those that don't know there are still endemic species of lynx in Europe? Yeah, we have two species of, of lynx in Europe. We have the Iberian lynx, which as the name would suggest is a, a native of Spain and Portugal. Mm -hmm. And it probably historically occurred further north into southern France and possibly other parts of Mediterranean Europe too. And then there's the Eurasian lynx, which would basically have occupied the rest of Europe, a much broader ge geographical distribution from the Atlantic coast of Western Europe all the way further east to the Pacific coast of Russia and right down to the Mediterranean, the Middle East and the Himalayas. So a much broader geographical distribution than the Iberian lakes. And am I right in saying that they're better at coping with colder temperatures, they're a bit furrier, they've got better pelts? Yeah, yeah. They, they, are, they would have denser pelts in the winter time. They're also considerably larger animals as well. So they're probably about twice the size of an Iberian lynx. Okay. Um, so they're coming in at about 20 to 25 kilos. Interestingly, the ones in probably the coldest parts of the range in Siberia are probably a, a bit bigger than that, sort of the high 20 uh, kilos. Sure. So they're pretty well uh, cold adapted. When did we lose them from the UK? 
Well, that's... Uh, are any of these questions straightforward? <laughs> None of them are straightforward. <laughs> but, you know, we can, we can make a best guess. We used to think that links, Eurasian links, died out in the British Isles, say, 4,000 years ago. Okay. And that was based on the fact that lynx bones were found in certain cave layers where there was thought to be the charcoal of Neolithic man. Couldn't find anything more recent than that. And because round about four to 5,000 years ago we had a period of natural climate change when our, our sort of cooler, wetter climate arrived, mm -hmm. then it was assumed that lynx died out through natural climate change. Actually, we now know that that's kind of rubbish and that the lynx survived here much more recently than that. There have been several bones from caves across Britain, and it's, it's nearly always limestone caves we're talking about, because the, the conditions for, for bone preservation happen to be very good there. Uh -huh. And we've got radiocarbon dates that show that they were still here into the Roman times, and, and actually into the early medieval times, so post-dating the Romans. How um, do we know they were native to here then still, or whether or not people might have brought them over? I mean, the Romans brought over whole tree species that weren't endemic. They could easily have brought over a few... I know, captive animals or even just the bones. Yeah, that's true. Uh, however, we've got a, a radiocarbon date trail that goes back many thousands of years before the Romans, right down to just after the Ice Age. So it, it, it does appear we had this continuity of lynx occurrence. Okay. Uh, certainly in Britain, uh, we've got, I think, one bone from uh, Ireland, which is well over 8,000 years old. We don't know how long they persisted after that. But in Britain, it would seem that they, they existed from post-glacial times right through to at least... Uh, the early medieval period and then in fact one of the things uh, that I looked at during my PhD was you know this whole story of you know where links native to Britain uh, when did they live here why did they die out and that included me walking into the building with eight books of medieval Welsh poetry which I suspect <laughs> was a first for a science department at Aberdeen and because um, I was trying to say well you know if we've got this radiocarbon dating evidence and I was involved in publishing a paper about uh, some of these more recent carbon dates from North Yorkshire, uh -huh. you know, there, there maybe there's some sort of faint cultural traces. Yeah, if they're in culture, chances are they've seen them, they know they're there, yeah. they talk about them. Yeah, and there are faint pieces of cultural evidence there. In fact, we wrote quite a neat little paper um, which took the carbon dates, the sort of hard science, and fused it together with some of the cultural references to links in the north of England in particular. And I think it was, it was a, a nice crossover, a multidisciplinary crossover between, you know, the hard science of radiocarbon dating and the, and the linguistic stuff, mm -hmm. Welsh language stuff, for example. And, and that paper <laughs> was surprisingly popular. The, the, the publisher of the, the paper in the Journal of Quaternary Science decided to, to do a press release, uh, and that got picked up by all the big broadsheets in the UK, sure. uh, New York Times, National Geographic. And this was the first paper from my PhD, so I was a bit blown away at the, the level of interest yeah. in in historic British links and, and what the implications of that were for a discussion about the suitability of reintroduction. Is it odd that there isn't a huge amount of very front-facing evidence of links in culture and name places and the like? Because you see, you see wolves and bears and names all over the place and mm. you don't see it with links. No, that's true. Um, we have many more place names, for example, in Scotland relating to wolves, and I'm sure that's the case elsewhere in Britain too. And we do have some bear place names, although nowhere near as many as we do have wolf place names. Yeah. And in fact, we're not aware of any lynx place names in Scotland. We're aware of perhaps one lynx place name from England, a village in Shropshire mm -hmm. called uh, Lostford, which we think might have been called Loskisford, and then before that Loxisford, and Lox being the old Saxon word for lynx. Okay. 
But this is not unusual. You know, if we go to countries like Lithuania, which have had lynx wolves bears right up until the 19th, 20th centuries, you know, a study was done looking at the, the, the animal place names in Lithuania. And, you know, there were something like 40 wolves and 50 bears and 40 fox place names. Just three lynx place names, you know. It seems to be quite typical that lynx are rarely, more rarely depicted in uh -huh. culture and art than the other large carnivores. And even today we see that manifesting itself in things like the fairy tales and the morality yeah. tales. You know, you've got Goldlocks and Three Bears, you've got... Uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood, yeah, and loads of wolf uh, morality tales, of course, where the wolf's nearly always the baddie. Well, is that maybe because they hunt in packs, like there are loads of them, and bears come in and you can't quite miss them, whereas a, a lynx is a stealth hunter? Yeah, I think it probably has a lot to do with their behaviour. Of the three large carnivores that are typically found widely across Europe, the, the lynx, the wolf and the bear, mm -hmm. the lynx is the smallest. The lynx is the one that is typically seen as being much less of a physical threat. Sure. It's typically much less of a threat to livestock. It's probably a lot shyer and harder to detect. So all of those things may well have contributed to lynx being much more rarely depicted in, in, our, in our culture. So if they're less of a threat, where do they go? If they're not a threat, then you can't imagine they were hunted because they were damaged to agriculture. It must be something else, surely. Well, you know, I, I guess compared to, say, wolves, lynx are much more closely tied to woodland. Uh -huh. You know, wolves exist today in the high Arctic of Canada. They, they live in the Arabian deserts. They're not necessarily an animal that's dependent on woodland. Uh -huh. I mean, they certainly do live in woodland elsewhere in Europe. The Eurasian lynx is much more closely tied to woodland. There are parts of its range in Central Asia where it's living amongst scrubby, rocky mountainous environments, but in Europe, lynx distribution is very closely tied to woodland. And of course, in the British Isles, we deforested early yeah. compared to other European countries and severely. Woodland levels were down to very uh, small percentages. Woodland cover in Scotland, by the time we get to the end of the 18th century, might have been as low as you know 5%, say. And for an animal that has big home ranges, that needs a lot of woodland, and of course, it needs a lot of wild prey, especially roe deer, then that's an ecological disaster. Sure. So I think humans robbed the landscape of the things that, that lynx needed. We were almost certainly hunting them for their warm winter pelt, which would have been a very luxurious item, which yeah. would have been worth a lot of money. And there seems to have been quite a trade in lynx pelts, certainly during the Renaissance era, because plenty of the rich and powerful people that are painted in portraits in the Renaissance era are wearing lynx for cloaks and shawls and things like that. There's probably a few in the television shows I've made. <laughs> Vikings wearing lynx pelts. Yeah, absolutely. And we, well, in fact, we know that, that lynx uh, pelts were found in some Viking burials in Sweden, yeah. for example. So it would have been a high-status thing. But also, did Hildegard von Bingham drink it? They drink lynx wee or something? I don't know if she drank it. She certainly recommended uh, doing <laughs> something pretty bizarre. Oh, like that's that. such a von Bingham thing, to recommend things without doing it herself. <laughs> Yeah, and th there was a, a belief that Link's pee solidified and formed garnet, you know. All sorts of weird and wonderful things were believed of Lynx back sure. in the day. And I, I think undoubtedly people would have probably lost the odd sheep or goat to Lynx, particularly when, you know, subsistence farmers are grazing their flocks in quite wooded landscapes in the past. Mm -hmm. And of course, Lynx don't really need to be killing sheep and goats. They just need to be perceived to be killing sheep and goats sure. for them to be seen as something that needs to be persecuted and overhunted. 
So you can see there, there would have been a combination of things to do with habitat, prey, yeah. resource in terms of its fur, uh, and a perception that it was a problem that had to be got rid of. There's the interesting statistic in your book about the number of Norwegian farmers who are claiming compensation for loss of sheep as a result of lynx attack, but there being absolutely no evidence enough to suggest that the numbers of sheep being lost could ever possibly lost to the population of, of lynx that you have out there. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, Norway. It's, it stands out very much in a European context. It's, it's in terms of the levels of predation of livestock attributed to lynx. Uh, it's way, way bigger numbers than we see in any other European country. Uh, and of course, typically, we're seeing people who are very philosophically opposed to the idea of lynx reintroduction in the UK immediately go to Norway and say, look, see, sure. this is what happens. But actually, you need to understand what is happening in Norway. And the reason, or one of the reasons why there are so many more kills attributed, of sheep attributed to lynx in Norway, is that the way that the Norwegians are grazing their sheep. So they're grazing two and a half million sheep, typically in woodland. Uh -huh. uh, so after spring, they get their sheep into the woods at the bottom of the hill. Take them out of fenced enclosures and pop them off into the... Exactly. There's no shepherding, there's no fencing. They're just popped into the woodland and they're allowed to graze their way through the trees. And they're not occurring as as flocks when they're in, you know, It's an individual cover. here, an individual there, they don't have the safety of the herd. Exactly. Flocking, flock is, a, even. flocking is an anti-predator behaviour. Yeah. Lynx and there's lots of trees for lynx to hide behind. Well, exactly. Lynx are much more circumspect about attacking a flock of animals because they know that there's a high chance they're going to get detected by yeah. the various ears and eyes. But if they're single or in small groups, they're basically replicating roe deer behaviour, which is their, their natural prey. And the key thing to understand about lynx hunting behaviour is they're an ambush hunter. Mm -hmm. You know, they need to get close enough to launch a surprise attack. And the whole thing needs to be over in a matter of seconds and a matter of metres. And of course, in a woodland, which is why they love woodland, mm -hmm. you've got loads of ambush cover. You've got standing trees and fallen trees and shrubbery and understory. So sheep are very vulnerable, not only to lynx, I have to say, but also to wolves, bears, wolverine, sure. foxes, golden eagles. So that's the reason why you see far more links being taken by, by sheep in Norway than you do in Sweden, for example. Now, Sweden's right next door, uh -huh. long border between the two countries. Sweden has a, a, a lynx population that's four times bigger than Norway, so they should have a bigger problem with sheep. Yeah. But of course, in Sweden, they're not grazing their sheep in the woodland. They're grazing them in open pastures where they're, the sheep are allowed to exist in flocks. And, and so we see far fewer losses of sheep to lynx in Sweden despite there being many more links there. In fact, they're paying out compensation in Sweden per annum for sheep killed to links that amount to 37,000 euros thereabouts per annum. Uh -huh. It's a pretty insignificant amount of money in the grand scheme of things. Sure. You cross the border to Norway, they're paying out 3 million euros. You know, you're getting on for a hundred times a greater amount of money being paid out in compensation, and yet they've got a lot fewer links and of course it is largely to do with that husbandry difference yeah. the other key thing though however you've, and you've alluded to it already is that in norway the compensation scheme is remarkably cavalier sure it's not a stringent process at all so a farmer can just report that say six of his sheep have been killed by a lynx and the chances are nobody's going to check that so I was quite astonished when I found that out. So in 97% of cases where money changed hands in terms of compensation for lynx killed livestock, there was no verification going on. Mm -hmm. So you could see how that system is very open to misinterpretation, particularly as there are other predators out there, and particularly as the, 
the Norwegian landscape is, is pretty wild and craggy. It's yeah. really steep slopes, there's rock avalanches. It's quite hard to investigate everything. Well, I think sheep could just wander off at somebody else's land. There's a remarkable lack of fencing in, in the Norwegian countryside. And so, and of course, it, it, it is also open to abuse. You know, yeah. People could be deliberately abusing that system. And I think... I would never begrudge a farmer from finding a side avenue for income. It's quite <laughs> a hard lifestyle, but I imagine if there's quite an easy way to blame something else for your loss of stock, then... Yeah, I, I think many Norwegians would accept that their livestock compensation system isn't quite functioning as well as it could do. So I, I think, uh, uh, interestingly, a, a team of Norwegian government-funded scientists looked at mm. this whole issue and concluded that lynx couldn't possibly be responsible for the level of sheep predation that is being reflected in the compensation sure. payouts. They, they felt, felt it was being exaggerated by up to nine times in some areas. So, which isn't to say that there isn't an issue, that I think there are lynx killing sheep in Norway for sure, and I think it's a bigger issue there than anywhere else in Europe, mm -hmm. but it's then being further exaggerated, exaggerated by, yeah. by this uh, compensation scheme. The one thing that seems clear to me is if, before we get on to talking about the feasibility of reintroduction of lynx into Scotland, the one thing that seems pretty clear is their habitat is forestry. So before we think about reintroducing a forest-dwelling creature, shouldn't we start thinking about trying to make a sizable enough uh, expanse of forest that isn't divided by roads and other borders? Like There needs to be a habitat, otherwise why would we even try? Yeah. Well, before I did my PhD, I was working for an organisation called Highland Birchwoods uh -huh. uh, on the Black Isle, just north of Inverness. What I was looking at and compiling, really, was, was maps of Scotland's woodland cover. And I could see that over the course of the 20th century, Scotland had afforested a great deal. There was four times as much woodland at the end of the 20th century as, the, as there had been at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And much of that woodland was developing in quite linear ways along glens and along straths. And it, it, it seemed to me we had quite an obvious forest habitat network developing across Scotland. And given my interest in wildlife and given my fascination for the extinct species, I started to wonder, you know, do we have enough well-connected forest habitat to support a large mobile forest-dependent species, such mm -hmm. as the lynx? Which is what, of course, led me to, to explore doing a PhD in the subject. Sure. And then, of course, I, I did cover that subject very much within my, my PhD and produced papers looking at habitat suitability, looking at habitat connectivity. And the outcome of that was, you know, we have enough suitable, well-connected woodland habitat in Scotland and suitable prey, certainly woodland deer, yeah. to support of, a minimum viable population. Of which there are a significant number and would help with woodland regeneration if we were to trim it down a bit. Yeah, yeah, we, we have plenty of roe deer. I mean, one of the things that the Norwegian scientists found was that in landscapes where you had what they called high roe deer densities, four per square kilometre, uh -huh that even if you had a lot of sheep in the woodland, lynx weren't killing sheep. They'd take the deer first. There were, there were enough deer to keep them away from the sheep. Okay. Now, four rodeo per square kilometre might be high by Norwegian standards, but that's a very low density by uh, Scottish standards. And I, and I know that we've, we're also seeing burgeoning woodland deer populations elsewhere in the UK. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing... Especially you know, since COVID, the culls slowed down and the number of venison eaters diminished and the deer just got a bit out of control. They're on Lundy, uh, which is an SSSI, their deer population has got so out of control that they're at risk of losing their SSSI status. So I, I it's think a problem for nature in that sense. I was recently at a, uh, an English deer management conference speaking about lynx and I was astonished at some of the woodland deer densities yeah. that were being 
reported mainly from the use of some clever drone technology. Sure. Drones that now have high definition photography and night vision and infrared, and they're able to detect deer that the human eye can't see. And they're coming out with figures like 200 muntjac per square kilometer. Oh, thank you, started in England. Wow, wow, that's that's a real glut of lynx food, you know. Yeah. But certainly, you know, in Scotland we have uh, uh, woodland deer densities: roe, sika, fallow, red, mm -hmm. uh, that are well in excess, especially when you combine them, well in excess of four per square kilometer. And you know, red deer, particularly calves and sometimes hinds, are taken by lynx in countries such as Poland. And actually, red deer in Poland are a lot bigger yeah. than red deer in Scotland. So I don't see why red deer hinds in Scotland wouldn't be vulnerable to lynx predation. Stags, probably not, mm -hmm. a bit too big and they've got the antlers, but uh, hinds, yeah, and calves are certainly vulnerable too. So what are the advantages to putting lynx back into our wildlife? And why was it Hermann Goering in the 40s that was technically the first person to start thinking about a lynx reintroduction project in Western Europe. Oh, you couldn't have a good podcast without mentioning the Nazis. Sorry. <laughs> it's true, though. They get an, a mention every single episode. You, no, you're right. Um, the Hermann Goering, as far as we know, was the first person to, to reintroduce lynx. He tried to do it in a place called the Romunterheide, which would have been part of East Prussia and is now part of the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. And it wasn't just lynx, he was punting out other things there like, like bison and, and big red deer stags. He was trying to create a, a hunter's paradise. Some um, kind of Walter Scottian-esque yes, idyll of it, pastoral it, beauty. It, it very much tied in with, with this, uh, this Nazi mythology of yeah. the, you know, the, the ancient wood with all the big beasts. It, this this kind of Germanic Aryan um, sort of narrative that they, that they were creating at the time. Did it work? No. <laughs> Funnily enough, um, I mean, leaving aside the whole issue of probably not having anywhere near enough links and, and, and really knowing what the hell they were doing, sure. of course, you then had the fact that the Red Army was piling through there uh, a couple of years later and there was ferocious battles being fought. But, but I think, you know, Goring deliberately shot out the last of the bison so that the sure. Russians couldn't get them. Yeah, well, there's lots of stories about the bison going, whether it be just to sort of starve armies out higher or, or just people trying to eat. Yeah. Like they would find themselves in big Polish forests and you've got these big bison you can take down that'll feed you your retreating troop for a good yeah. a good onward march. Yeah. Um so yeah, so what are the advantages of of a big apex predator? And in particular in the UK? Well, I, I guess there, there's all sorts of drivers as to why people might want to to consider reintroducing links. Some people would say, Well hold on, we humans were responsible for, mm. for their extinction in Britain. Surely we Morally, ethically, we have a responsibility to bring them back. Would uh, this be the longest time gap between loss of species to potential reintroduction of species? Because we don't, we don't, we very rarely do, like the beaver is a few hundreds of years. Well, we don't really know when the lynx uh, went extinct in, in Scotland. Uh, my best guess was that they, they may have survived in Scotland until, say, 15th, 16th centuries. Okay. Again, we don't really know when the beaver went extinct. Uh, I mean, that's still quite a big gap, though. It is a big gap. To justify a habitat that has learnt, in some senses, to cope without them. Yeah, it is a big gap, and we don't see any lynx reintroduction in Europe restoring lynx to a landscape with such a big time gap. Although yeah. there are examples from elsewhere in the world where there's been a longer gap. For example, uh, Per David's deer in China were made extinct in the wild in the Middle Ages, but were kept in captivity by Chinese emperors for centuries, and, and then eventually reintroduced to the wild in the 20th century. So that's a massive gap. The naturalistic tendencies of Chinese emperors and Nazis. 
What a wonderful bunch of people they all were. Yeah, gosh, we've covered a bit of ground today, haven't we? <laughs> so, yeah, it is a long gap. And yeah, maybe the, you could argue that our, our woodlands have adapted without the presence of large carnivores. We, of course, human beings, have had to fill that role of the large carnivore. And yeah. we do that. We, we, you know, we shoot. We cull deer. We shoot thousands of deer every year. Yeah. Lynx will do it in a slightly different way, of course. They don't use guns. They don't use guns. They're very well adapted for detecting woodland deer, even at low densities. And arguably, they're better at doing that than humans are. Mm -hmm. Humans are pretty good at shooting lots of deer when there are lots of deer to shoot. Sure. But when densities have got down to more modest levels, and say you want lower than modest levels for conservation purposes, then a lynx would be uh, an effective tool at doing that. Mm -hmm. Of course, when a lynx kills a deer, it feeds off that carcass for several days. Mm -hmm. That carcass is lying on the forest floor for four or five days. During that time and after when the lynx is completely finished with it, it won't have eaten absolutely everything, of yeah. course. It's available to a wide range of, of uh, scavengers from invertebrates right up to you know, eagles and wild boar and bears. And so... It intensifies it, the biological interactions that could yeah, exist. It, you could argue that the provision of deer carcasses in forests is, is a, a fairly missing ecological process because mm -hmm. most deer carcasses in British woodlands are removed. You know, a human hunter shoots it. Yeah. A human hunter might leave the gralich behind, you know, the, the innards. Yeah, yeah. But the rest of it is getting taken out, including the skeletal matter. And so that's a lot of nutrients that are not getting fed back into the soil. And we know from studies elsewhere in the world that where uh, wolves, for example, are leaving large carcasses of, say, moose uh, lying around, that there is a response from the soil uh, and the vegetation, as well as all the other animals that benefit from a carcass. There was a, again, not to take me back to Namibia again, but whenever they found a poached rhino, they would remove the head to make it clear that they would counted that that one had been poached, but the rest of the body would be left there for scavengers and invertebrates and for the nutrients to go back into the ground and yep. I mean it must be incredibly macabre to come across the rotting corpse of a headless rhino well. when you're walking around the desert yeah. um, but uh, it and seems like the most natural way to advance the conservation movement at least. And there's been some fascinating documentaries on TV that have set up cameras on big carcasses yeah. over you know a variety of weeks to just see exactly what happens to that carcass. Well the best ones are the whale ones, the under ones you see the whole. <laughs> oh yeah yeah crazy yeah um so is there any risk i guess we talk about how they would help do helpful control of wildlife is there risk that the lynx could be preying on red squirrels pine martins capercaillies uh the wildcats we spoke about earlier is there a risk that this other environmental project could negatively impede other environmental projects and also we're an island mm. there's not going to be any other lynxes coming in to help sort of extend the genetic diversity of, of said lynx. And we'll get on to translocation, I guess, in a second, but okay. should we? Well, from the other side, there's let, lots of questions. Let there. me come back to the genetics one. I'll, I'll forget about it, so you'll need to remind me. Okey-dokey. But that, that whole issue about conflicting conservation objectives, you asked whether lynx can kill wildcats and capercaillie. You know, is, is there a risk of predation? Well, yes, there is a risk of predation. The key thing is whether that predation is going to be significant at a population level. Sure. So we do know, for example, that lynx can kill capercaillie and that they do kill capercaillie. We know the same of wildcats, that they have killed wildcats in continental Europe. But for me, you know, what was really interesting about looking at a variety of studies across Europe over the decades is one of the key common threads, no matter where you are in Europe, 
and no matter what gender of lynx you're looking at, the one mammal, leaving aside the deer, which we know that they, they like to hunt, yeah. and that, that forms the, the basis of their, of their diet, the one mammal that they are routinely taking out is red fox. Okay. And now, are they that, competitors? Because yes. they're scavengers, aren't they, exactly. rather than hunters? Well, yes, exactly. So the lynx is, is predating a, a roe deer, and it will feed on that carcass for, say, four or five days. It will start on the haunches, that's the best bit, and it will probably eat a couple of kilos of, of meat per day. Yeah. And between feeding bouts, it will go away somewhere, probably not terribly far away, a couple of hundred metres, and sleep it off, and then come back to that carcass. In the meantime, it might have covered the carcass with snow or leaf litter to try and hide it a bit. But obviously animals with really good senses of smell, like fox and maybe wild boar, are going to detect that carcass. Yeah. And, and lynx know that foxes are going to be scavenging their carcass. So the fox has an interesting cost-benefit analysis to do in its little head. It has to decide... Mm, <laughs> Gets a little calculator out. Yeah. And it's thinking, the there's a lot of meat still left in that carcass, so I could sneak in. However, if the lynx finds me, it's game over. Yeah. Or I could wait till the lynx is completely finished with it after four to five days, and then there's you know, minimal chance of being predated by the, by the lynx. But mm-hmm. obviously all the best stuff's gone. I'm just kind of left with skin and bone and a bit of gristle. Mm-hmm. So uh, if it does sneak in, yeah, there's a good chance that it will get killed by the lynx. So lynx know that foxes scavenge their kills, and we know that lynx will routinely kill foxes as and when they encounter them in the landscape. It doesn't need to be at the carcass. Sure. Studies have shown that sometimes they're actually eating the fox, but in many instances they're not. They're just killing them and leaving them. Okay. So there's an interesting diet study from uh, the Swiss Jura Mountains where, where lynx were successfully reintroduced in the 1970s, and where, by the way, human population densities are something like 100 people per square kilometre. Mm-hmm. You compare that with the Highland region of Scotland where it's nine sure. people per square kilometre. That's an interesting comparison to make. But the diet study showed following... 29 lynx over a 10-year time period, these were radio-tracked or snow-tracked animals, that they'd killed 617 animals, or at least those were the ones that, that were found by the, the, the field biology team. And as you'd expect, 90% of the animals that they um, had been killing were roe deer and the slightly bigger chamois. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole league table of stuff below that that includes pine martens and badgers and hares. And but not know, at significant numbers. It's... Exactly, very small levels. In fact, there was one wild cat and one capricale. I feel but, sorry for those two individuals. <laughs> yeah, I know. At least they're immortalised in the scientific papers. Well, indeed. Way. So we, we know that lynx can and do kill them, but that's 29 lynx in 10 years killed, you know, one, yeah, one, one capricale and yeah. one wild cat. Very insignificant levels of predation. And yet what was third in the table was red fox after Rodian and chamois, and they killed 37 foxes. Okay. So it's a much more commonplace activity. Now, of course, we know that whilst lynx and wildcats are not really competing for the same resources because obviously wildcats are interested in small mammals, lynx are interested in big mammals, we know that foxes are competing with wildcats for mice and voles and rabbits. We know from studies done in Scotland that foxes can be significant nest predators of capricale, Mm -hmm. taking the eggs, taking the chicks, maybe even taking the odd poult now and then as well. So you're implying that lynx could help with the conservation methods and the hopes of capricale and wildcat reintroductions because the fox numbers would be taken down. Yeah, I certainly don't think they're going to be harmful to capricales or wildcats and they could even benefit them. In fact, there's some pretty good science from Sweden and Finland showed that as lynx populations recolonized during the second half of the 20th century because of conservation measures, they were recolonizing lost ground, 
they've got really good wildlife monitoring data from Sweden and, and Finland that showed that populations of animals that we might consider to be lynx prey, mm -hmm. such as mountain hare, capercaillie, black grouse, actually rose, those numbers rose as the lynx recolonized, which might seem a bit counterintuitive. But what they reckoned was happening was that the lynx were suppressing the foxes, sure. which, which are much more typical predators of smaller species like woodland grouse and mountain hare. And of course that suppression could be direct predation. It could just be that the foxes were just getting the hell out of Dodge because they don't want to be in a yeah. landscape where they could get predated. So genetic diversity, how do you get a successful genetically rich population of lynx into an area? And I imagine it's slightly better than uh, in Grand Paradiso where they decided to drop just two solitary males, which obviously didn't lead to a terribly successful breeding program. Yeah, that was a bit of a schoolboy error, that one. <laughs> to be, slightly. Yeah. To be fair, what they had intended to do was, okay, they got two males, was drop them off in Grand Paradiso National Park and then go off and get two females. Alas, the two females that got uh, captured for that reintroduction actually ended up, because of some bureaucratic problem, actually ended up going to another reintroduction elsewhere. Okay. So it was just two, two males. Roaming which, around uh, on their own. Didn't really lead to a burgeoning lynx population. So yes, genetic diversity. How do you make sure that brothers and sisters don't get too friendly? Or mothers and sons and fathers and daughters? Yeah, I, I think um, instinctively animals would probably try and avoid that. They've probably got their, their own inbuilt social ways of avoiding that if they can. But if you're introducing a small number of animals to start with, as you yeah. would be in Scotland, yeah. they're not going to have the option to, to be careful. Yeah, I, I think you would try and avoid releasing whole families of animals. You know, if, you, if you're doing a sort of wild-to-wild -wild reintroduction, so you're taking wild lynx from somewhere else in Europe, you'd probably have to quarantine them, of course, mm -hmm. and then ultimately releasing them. You, you're, you're sort of capturing whatever you can get in the landscape. So I would definitely try and get as many unrelated lynx as you can. The bigger the release population, the, the, probably the, the better that is yeah. as well. And actually, I think there's a lot to be said for which part of Europe, which population you're taking your source population from, because not every lynx population is equally genetically diverse. Mm -hmm. So the, the lynx of Norway and Sweden, because you know those pretty big populations today actually emanate from a very small remnant population on a peninsula, i.e. on that they were straddling the border area of Norway and Sweden yeah. and down to perhaps you know 50, 100 animals. They lost a lot of genetic diversity because of that, um, that contraction down in terms of size and area. So the genetic diversity of the Scandinavian lynx population is actually surprisingly low. Whereas if you go further east to say Finland mm -hmm. or to the Baltic nations where the lynx population have been replenished in the 20th century by huge populations in Russia, there is much more genetic diversity further east. So I would suggest if you're going to take lynx from somewhere else in Europe, you want to take them from one of these much more genetically diverse sure. populations. Try and get a, a decent sized founder population, try and ensure that it's not closely related to one another. Of course, very often you just have to take what you can get. But I guess if you're trapping across a wide enough area, chances are you're not going to end up with siblings and parents and whatnot. Do individuals learn? Do you end up with uh, particularly dangerous links that have worked out that a farm is somewhere to, to find some cheap sheep? Yes. Because lions I, do that. If a lion finds a way to a human civilization uh, settlement, it's good to get rid of that lion or to move it, translocate it. At worst, kill it. Yeah, I think we do definitely see individuals, uh, individual behavior within lynx populations. 
it, it does seem that some lynx individuals are more predisposed to predating on, on sheep than others. And perhaps once they've done it once or twice, they'll do it more often. Mm -hmm. And so in some European countries, such as Switzerland, they have a rule that if a, a lynx kills more than 15 sheep in a year, it's designated as a problem animal and a license will be given to a state game warden to shoot that animal. Uh -huh. And I think, I think that might have happened very recently, but before that, that hadn't had to happen for 20 years because the level of sheep predation by lynx in Switzerland is very, very low. Okay. But it does seem that you get one or two individuals that will develop the behaviour, but in most instances, certainly outside Norway, the vast majority of the lynx population is not going anywhere near sheep. They're not interested. So here's the, here's the million dollar question. You have the option to green light a lynx reintroduction program tomorrow. Would you do it right now? Are we ready? I think ecologically we're ready. You know, as my PhD showed almost 20 years ago, we have the habitat, we have the prey. So the, the raw ingredients, the physical ingredients are there. Sure. I would say the, the sociopolitics aren't, aren't there. Has much changed in those 20 years since PhD to where we are now? Yeah, I think there has been a great deal of change. At the time I did my PhD, nobody was really talking about lynx reintroduction. Mm -hmm. there, there was a mammal reintroduction discussion going on in Scotland, but it was very focused on beavers mm -hmm. and very focused on wolves. And of course, we're still having that beaver conversation, albeit there are now beavers being... Um, the beavers are... There was some in Loch Lomond yesterday. Yeah, and there are beavers throughout the, the River Tay system and yeah. some of the adjoining rivers. And in fact... We are very much looking forward to, to reintroducing beavers here in the Cairngorms National Park in the next few months uh, into the River Spey. Do you suspect there's some here already? I'm not aware of any in the River Spey okay. or, or elsewhere in the National Park, but there certainly are uh, in you know, watercourses south of the, the yeah. National Park. They just haven't colonised here yet. But yeah, the, the large carnivore reintroduction discussion was very much dominated by wolves, largely because I think in the 1990s there was growing public awareness that there was a lot of red deer in Scotland and that that was having ecological effects on, for example, regenerating woodland. Mm -hmm. And of course, the other thing that happened in the mid-1990s was that the Americans successfully reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone National Park. Yeah. And that was all over the popular media. And there's been, you know, loads of uh, wildlife documentaries about that. And of course, the fact that it's an anglophonic country means we're only too well aware of what's happening there. Yeah, yeah. But of course we... We don't hear about the links in Russia. <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. We've got no idea what our, our Czech neighbours <laughs> and our Austrian neighbours and our French and German neighbours have been up to with a, perhaps a, a much less headline-grabbing animal in many ways. It's not quite as controversial, not quite as scary, doesn't dress up as your granny. Sure. So we, we haven't really been aware that there have been successful links reintroductions going on that have been, by and large, not terribly controversial. So I think what perhaps my my PhD did and then the subsequent media coverage of it and various lectures I've given and articles and whatnot mm -hmm. has perhaps put them the, the sort of replaced the animal in the spotlight you know taking the wolf out of it and put the links in and said look guys this is an animal that has been successfully reintroduced into other European countries yeah. whereas wolves haven't you know they reintroduce themselves because yeah. they're long distance dispersers and, and we see them popping up in such unlikely places as the Netherlands and Belgium and Denmark but the Eurasian links... But you also find them on a Spanish city hall steps and just the heads of them. There's still a huge <laughs> yeah. discussion going yeah, on Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it doesn't come without problems. We know that wolves can be very contentious animals. Yeah. Uh, and certainly we know in Norway in particular that there's a, a, a huge amount of heat generated by uh, wolf politics. Although it's fascinating to see how few wolves are tolerated in, in 
such a, a rugged, fairly unpopulated country such as Norway compared to, see Italy, mm-hmm. where there are many, many more people and many, many more wolves. I'm not saying there's no, not issues there, but, you know, it is possible to live alongside wolves. Yeah. But I think where we've got to now is the, the discussion about large carnival reintroduction in the UK has, has, has seen the links become a much more, perhaps, realistic point of discussion. We know that it can be reintroduced to other economically active, human-modified landscapes that are densely populated, that have got roads, that have got farming and forestry uh, and tourism and, uh, and such, such things. So we know that it can be done. So there's been, there's been much more coverage of it, and I think people are, are becoming more aware of its ecology and, and its history and its, and its suitability in this sure. landscape, which is not to pretend, however, that the vast majority of the British public get that message. Yeah. And, I, and I still think this is the biggest issue that Link's reintroduction faces, is that most people don't really understand Link's. And of course, why should they? The, yeah. This is an animal that hasn't lived here for, for many centuries. Yeah. You very rarely see it on, on TV. Most people, your average person in the street, if you stopped them and asked them what a wolf is, would be able to tell you what yeah. a wolf is and that it howls and it lives in a pack and it, you know, it hunts big animals. But I would imagine a minority would probably be able to give you accurate facts about lynx. Like I say, understandable, but what I've found is that people make assumptions. When they've got knowledge gaps, they fill them with assumptions. And very often those assumptions are quite wrong and misleading and they take the discussion off in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So people are, are very often equating lynx and wolves because they're you know, quite yeah. often talked about in the same sentence. But actually lynx and wolves are very different beasts. You know, a, a wolf is twice the size of a lynx. It's a social animal that lives in a pack and it can hunt quite happily in open environments. Sure. Lynx, half the size, solitary uh, and an ambush hunter living in dense cover. And so the relationships between other wildlife species and indeed our species and our livestock is very different amazing there are three questions that i ask everyone who comes on the podcast ah the first question is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now where would it be Ooh, that's an excellent question well i have to say i was rather taken with finland okay i went that was my last foreign holiday and uh it was brilliant i loved finland Uh, I just loved the the pace of life. I went near the Russian border. Mm -hmm. Probably a bit less inclined to do that these days. (laughs) But at the time, um, my partner and I, we spent a couple of nights in some wooden sheds, basically, not far from the Russian border. And we had these sheds to ourselves. These are hides, of course. And some food was put out. And we got absolutely cracking views of brown bears and wolverines right in front of us. I mean, we had to obviously be stock still and not make any noise. But it was just amazing. Um, And we saw all sorts of other fantastic wildlife. And the people were very friendly. So, uh, yeah, Finland. You never know what you're going to see around the corner. Do you think we can learn from the Finns in terms of their natural environmental conservational agendas? Or are we doing fine in our own way? I think we can always learn from other countries. Um, I mean, I would be the first to say that I'm not really a scientist. My my background, my, my academic strengths have always been things like history, geography. And Welsh lang- poetry from the medieval period. Well, I wouldn't quite call myself an expert, but I've dabbled. Um, but yeah, I um, I very much, as, a, as an old geographer, like to, to put Scotland and perhaps other parts of the UK into a wider geographical context especially within Europe but yeah. also perhaps looking at other that's clear from your book actually it, you you make the argument through parallel and contrast but uh, kind enough not to draw any quick conclusions you put everything alongside everything and allow people to come to their own 
Yeah, I, I was quite keen to just, with the book, take the experiences from other parts of Europe, much of which have been scientifically proven, uh-huh. and say, folks, you know, UK audience, here's the, the, the evidence, here are the facts from across Europe, present them in a non-technical way, mm-hmm. and allow people to interpret that themselves, um, and hopefully they'll have come to a conclusion that Link's reintroduction in the UK isn't going to result in the collapse of Western civilization as we know it. A second question. Who is your natural history hero? <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to have to come up with a, a rather tedious answer in some ways. And of course, it has to be David Attenborough. There you go. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing I'm probably not the first person to have said that. Uh, you might be. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. um, so, yeah, growing up in the 1980s, uh, watching things like The Living Planet, sure. you know, it just blew me away. And I got The Living Planet book as a school prize when I uh, when I left primary school. And so that was a, a treasured possession. And it does, in fact, and again, so something I really cherished, it does have a photograph of a Eurasian lynx in, a, in mm. a snowy Bavarian forest. I thought, wow, cool. Um, so There's nothing quite like the silhouette of the tufts on their ears yeah. against the white background. Yeah, just, exactly. There's something about it. And actually, I, I had the, the honour... To, to meet David Attenborough very fleetingly at a fundraising event in Edinburgh shortly before lockdown kicked in. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was going to be there, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to chance my arm. It was a big event, there was hundreds of people at it, and he, he, had, he had a security detail. That's, <laughs> that's how unlikely this was. Um, so getting near him was pretty challenging, but I, I took a, a signed copy of my, of my Lynx book and dedicated it to him inside. Sure. And uh, he made the mistake of breaking away from the herd. He, he, he moved away to go and look at that. This was in the National Museum of Scotland. A lynx expert's always going to find something when it deflux. <laughs> I ambushed him. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he broke away to go and look at um, a fossil, because it was in the National Museum of Scotland, uh-huh. and uh, th- this event was taking place. And I thought, now's my moment. Grabbed my book. And I went over to him. Security detail was distracted. <laughs> and I, I explained to him that he had been such a massive influence on my career and that there had been this fantastic Lynx uh, photograph in the Living Planet book, which had really inspired me as well. And here's a, a small thank you for everything you've done and given a copy of my book. I've no idea whether he's read it. I've no I'm idea sure whether he's he still has. got it, but I, I felt quite chuffed. He's the kind of good egg that I imagine probably did. Yeah. Um, and final question. What is your most wild experience? Well, I have to say, and this is probably my most wild experience because even thinking about it right now makes the, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Mm-hmm. It's when I was doing my PhD, I went off to Switzerland for several weeks to assist the, the team at CORA, the, the governmental agency that does wildlife monitoring there, mm-hmm. in doing radio tracking around the Alps of lynx. And of course the chances of, of seeing a lynx, even when you're radio tracking it, are really, really low. Yeah. And my expectations were near zero. But one day I was out with this other chap, Jens, and we were radio tracking a reintroduced male in northeast Switzerland. And we were getting a strong signal at first, but then the signal just disappeared. We thought, well, what's happened to that? And we thought, well, we were in an environment where there was lots of big cliffs. And we reckon the, the signal was just bouncing around and we were losing it because of the, the topography. Sure. But we kept walking. And then suddenly we, um, we started getting a strong signal again. And Jens said, look, I think... I think he's just on the other side of this wooded ravine. He's probably watching us right now. So we, we sort of slowly took our rucksacks off, sat down, got the binoculars out and scanned through this wooded ravine. And it's about 100 metres away from us. And then sure enough, this tiny little face 
just staring at us, big eyes, through the cover, through the foliage. And like I say, even now, the hairs are going up in the back of my neck. It was a fantastic moment. I, was, I suppose I was a little bit worried that it would be anticlimactic seeing sure. my first lynx, but yeah. it absolutely wasn't. You dedicated your life to them and then suddenly, ah, yeah. it's just a cat. It's just a cat. And no, <laughs> this, this was cool. I mean, you could say, well, that's not very wild. I had a radio collar on. Still counts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was a... Uh... Is that the only lynx you've seen in the wild? Because as you say, it's almost impossible. It's very hard to sort of build an ecotourism sector around. It, it, it is. They're lakes. a very challenging animal. You can see them in the wild. I know people who have seen them in the wild and they've actually gone out to see them. And I thought, you haven't got a chance. In fact, I think I told them, you haven't got a chance, mate. And they came back and said, yeah, we did. <laughs> so very difficult. And I've seen the footprints uh, in Switzerland and, and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. The other time I've seen a lynx, I was actually holding one in my arms which I wouldn't recommend in most instances, <laughs> but in this particular instance, of course, uh, it had been trapped in a cage trap and anaesthetised, and it was then going to be relocated for a reintroduction project. So oh. I, I do have a photograph of me uh, about 20 years ago holding a sleepy lynx. What did it smell like? Uh, lynx Africa. <laughs> hey, there was me thinking whether or not we'd get through the entire podcast without mentioning everyone's first thought when you mention links, especially if you're a schoolboy from the 1990s. Well, you teed it up for me. I had no choice. <laughs> I had nowhere else to go. <laughs> David, thank you very much indeed. That's hugely appreciated. Well, thanks. Great to speak to you. Cheers. A huge thank you to David. That interview was such a pleasure to record and a joy to revisit in the edit. You always know it's a good one when you don't mind hearing your own voice projected back at you. David is, as you've heard, a well of knowledge. And if you would like to know more, he wrote a book, The Lynx and Us. It's a few years old now, but it expands upon a lot of what we touched upon over the last hour, perhaps unsurprisingly. It is well worth a read, but if you can't read, and that's why you listen to podcasts, then the accompanying photography in that book by Laurent Geslan will make you fall in love with lynxes all over again. As always, there's more on this episode on our website, treesacrown.fm, where you will find many, 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 many other episodes on a whole array of natural historical topics. And you can even support us on Patreon if you have any spare coins, which nobody does these days. We will be back again in a month, possibly sooner, actually. But until then, bye bye for now and enjoy February. Bye bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.